Adults, if you would, go ahead and turn in your Bibles. Went the wrong way. <laughs> turn in your Bibles, 1 Timothy. We, uh, as I said before, it's good be good to be back with all of you. It was, a, it was a good trip. It was a different trip than we anticipated, but it was a good trip. Um, and again, we are so incredibly thankful for the way that uh, you guys love us um, as a family um, and, and your expressions of sympathy and uh, truly am grateful. Um, uh, you as a church, some of you may not know this, but you as a church sent a wonderful flower um, thing that just meant the world to um, Melissa's grandmother and to the family and to us as well. And so thank you for that. Um, you have no idea what that meant and the testimony that was to their family um, of who you are and uh, what we are as a church family. We are focusing again on 1 Timothy uh, and 2 Timothy and Titus over the course of the next 12 weeks. If you have not been part of Sunday School over the last few weeks, I hope that you will join in. I hope that you have received this book, at least as a couple. Um, if you are a couple that cannot share, let me know and we will uh, get you another one of these. Um, but uh, we hope that you have one of these in your possession and that you'll use it over the next 12 weeks as we study uh, these three wonderful letters of Paul to Timothy and to Titus. Um, in the back, you, sh- you might have received this in Sunday school, but they're in the back as well. There's also a reading plan for the next 12 weeks. Um, they are not hard. Um, they are five days out of the week. None of the readings are super long. And so even if you've, uh, you'll notice that you may be behind when you pick one up, I promise you, you can either start right where we are or you can catch up fairly easily. Um, But we hope that you will take this opportunity in a new year uh, to join us in a a different way, maybe than you have in the past, to to be able to study these books and the Word of God along with us on uh, on Sunday mornings especially, and then throughout the week. Um, Timothy uh, is known as a book of uh, the, for pastors, Timothy and Titus both. They're, they're known as the pastoral epistles. Uh, and sometimes when we hear that, though, we tend to think that, well, then this isn't a book for me. Most of us are not pastors. Most of us don't have uh, that calling or that position. And so we hear pastoral epistle and we think that's for someone else. Um, but this is these letters, all three of them, are wonderful things filled with truth that we need to know as church members. How do we deal with false teaching as a church? How do we, as a church, act towards others? How do we, as a church, support and encourage one another? How do we have leadership in the church? What does that look like? Um, And so, and on and on, we can go. Um, But these are important letters, not just for pastors. These are important letters for the whole church. And so we come to them uh, with great thankfulness um, and great anticipation and so hopefully by now you found 1 Timothy. If you are able, would you please stand with me as we honor the reading of God's Word this morning. We're going to read all of chapter 1, verses 1 through 20. Don't be uh, confused by the amen in verse 17. That's not the stopping point. Uh, we are moving on past that. Uh, start at 1 Timothy, starting in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. 
As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they are making confident assertions. Now we, now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God which I have been entrusted. I thank Him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because He judged me faithful, appointing me to His service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ not might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. To the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge I entrust to you to my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Let's pray. Father, we come before you, and Father, again, we are thankful. Thankful that we have the incredible privilege and opportunity of gathering together as one family made up of brothers and sisters in Christ before a heavenly Father who loves us well, who blesses us, who leads us, who disciplines us. Father, I pray this morning as we hear your word that we would desire more of it that we would desire more of You every day, every moment. Father, that we would be increasingly more like our Savior. And that we would encourage others to do the same. Father, I pray, Lord, use Your Word in a way that only You can this morning. We pray this in the beautiful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Before we jump too far into... First Timothy, I want to give a little bit of background for this book. Uh, many of you, it may be old news, but uh, for some of us, it may be helpful. Uh, we have uh, in this letter 
um, Paul writing to one of his uh, protégés, um, one of his uh, family, so to speak, um, though they are not blood-related. Uh, this is a letter between Paul and Timothy. Paul calls Timothy his child. He calls him in other places his son, not just here in Timothy and Titus, but also in uh, Philippians, you'll see him address Timothy that manner. They had met um, when Paul was going on one of his missionary journeys. Paul met Timothy's family. And Paul and others, as we can see in verse 18, uh, identified Timothy as someone who God had given special gifts and a special uh, placed a special calling upon his life. And so Timothy began to travel with uh, Paul to different places. They, their relationship strengthened and deepened to the point where Timothy was used by Paul as an extension of himself. He would send Timothy, Paul would send Timothy out to different churches and out to different places so that he would know or so that he could uh, give the message that Paul himself would deliver normally. Um, and so he used him as an extension. We can see that even here in 1 Timothy, that Paul has told Timothy, stay put in Ephesus. I have a specific job for you. And so the next thing is we need to look a little bit about this church in Ephesus. Ephesus was an interesting place. It was a metropolitan area. It was a hustling, bustling uh, hub city of commerce and religion. Uh, the cult of Artemis was huge in this town and had a crazy amount of influence. You can see that in uh, Acts uh, when it talks about Paul's time there. Um, and it was, but it was a new church that Paul had planted, and they had their own challenges. Specifically, as we can tell from 1 Timothy, they were struggling with false doctrine, people coming in and teaching things that were not true. Um, and they were struggling with what to believe and how to handle this. And so Timothy comes to instruct them, and he must have done a fairly good job because in Revelation, Ephesus was one of the seven churches that Jesus addresses. And what he has good to say about them is that they, um, that they hate false teaching, that they've done a good job of understanding false teaching and confronting it and, and dismissing it. And so he commends them on that. They weren't a perfect church by any stretch of the imagination, though. <clears throat> Jesus says in that same passage in Revelation that he has a problem with them that they have become all head and no heart, that they have learned well the theology of the gospel, but they have not put it into practice. And certainly that's a good warning for all churches, all individuals that follow Christ. Let us not be a people that have got all head knowledge, but no heart. One of the interesting things that every time I think of Ephesus, though, I think of Paul's time there. Paul normally went into a place and then he would leave fairly quickly um, because of persecution or the moving of the Holy Spirit, but he would move on. Paul actually spent two years in Ephesus to the point where Acts tells us that everyone that lived in that region, everyone who was in the footprint of Ephesus, had had an opportunity to respond to the gospel because they had heard the truth. I can't imagine a better thing to say about a church than to say that everyone in their footprint has had an opportunity to respond to the gospel through a personal hearing of the gospel, a personal invitation to know Christ. It was quite the church, but they, certainly they faced their challenges. We see several themes in this book as well. Uh, one of those themes 
<coughs> obviously, is false teachers, which we'll get to here in a moment. Another theme of this book is the life and calling of a minister. What does that look like? How is a minister to act? What is a minister to do? The godly life of the church. It's not just the godly life of the pastor, but the godly life of the church. What does that look like in the context of us gathering together? And then, yes, he does talk about the structure of the church. We are not some haphazard organization, but rather there is to be some uh, structure to what we do, some purpose to what we do together. And as we go through the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at these different themes, and then these themes carry across to 2 Timothy and Titus as well. What we're going to look at here this morning, though, is what Paul begins to address in 1 Timothy chapter 1, and that is false teachers. You'll notice uh, that I've titled this uh, sermon series, What the Church Does. And certainly we're not going to exhaust that list this morning um, or over the next 12 weeks either. But, um, this, but there, Paul gives us some very definite things that we are to be about. And one of those is that the church confronts false teachers. The church confronts false teachers. It's one of the things that we are to do as a people Because we are stewards of the truth. We're stewards of the truth. We have this incredible treasure that we have been given, and it is the truth of God. The world desperately seeks identity. The world desperately seeks to know why we're here. The world is seeking contentment and satisfaction, and they chase a whole host of things to get any one of those. But what we find, what the world finds, is that all of them are hollow. You chase after prestige, but when you get it, you find that there is something still empty. You chase after success, and yet when you find what the world defines as success, you want more. You chase after the perfect family, only to realize that no such thing exists. You chase after hobbies only to find that they cannot be your true identity. We come as believers in Christ with a great treasure saying, you have been created in the image of Christ that you may know him. He is full. He is what satisfies He, in Him, we find contentment. In Him, we find the purpose of life. In Him, we find everything. We hold a great treasure. And because of that, we are stewards of the truth. Paul uses that term in a couple of different places in the chapter. He says there in verse 4 that we have a stewardship from God that is by faith. Going down to verse 11, it says that uh, in accordance with the gospel, the glory of the blessed God, which I have been entrusted, we have been given this great thing that we are to share and to watch over. Truly, the church is based on the glorious truth of the word of God. So any attempt to present something else as truth or to distract the church from the truth is a direct attack on the foundation of the church and left unchecked these attempts will devastate a church you will notice i said devastate a church not the church the church of god will always be victorious she will always win but if a church chooses to 
step aside or to ignore false teaching in her midst, ultimately it will bring great heartache. We must understand what we are founded on and we must guard it. But in order to do that, we must know it. We must know it. If we are to guard this, then we must know it. It's not, a, not enough for us to simply have a Bible on our shelf that we pick up once a week to bring to this place. We cannot, as we joked with the children earlier, simply hold it up to our heads and gather information. To know truth, we must, we must read this book. We must know it for ourselves. It is not enough even to come here and to listen to a pastor weekly give a 30-minute sermon and try to explain the Word of God and some things that are unexplainable, that are just too magnificent to think upon. It would be like trying to eat once a week for 30 minutes. You could live, but it would not be healthy. In the same way, consuming the Word of God once a week, you can make it. You can be a believer. But it's not a healthy way to be a believer. Nor would I say it's the way that Christ has taught us or what says about being a believer. If we are to be stewards of truth, we must know the truth. And we must understand that we face an ever-present enemy. False teaching is nothing new. I mean, we have Paul writing to Timothy here in the early days of the church, but it's not just Paul writing to Timothy. You go throughout the New Testament and you find false teaching in the writings of John. John saying, hey, beware of these guys. Be careful of these people. Be careful of this message. Peter writing to the church says, be careful of these people. Be careful of what they're saying. It is not the truth. Jude goes over the top. The little letter of Jude, man, that guy gets with it, like talking against, speaking against false teaching. False teaching is an ever-present enemy because we have an enemy who is the father of lies, who from the very beginning has desired to take the truth of God and to distort it and to turn it and to destroy that which God desires for good. We see it back then. We see it today. And individuals who desire to preach something other than the true gospel, who say that you must do something in order to earn God's favor, for those that say that in faith, if you just have enough faith that you will have whatever you want, whether it be worldly possessions or better health or whatever the case may be, we must be careful of those who would add to the gospel, who would change the gospel, who would preach something different than what we have here. And we are to confront them. If we're to say something, not stand idly by. Paul as he addresses this truth, as he addresses this issue with Timothy, lays out the profile of a false teacher. What does a false teacher look like? If we are to confront them, if we are to deal with the situation, if we are to be the church who is a good steward of the gospel we've been given, then how do we identify them? And Paul gives us in 1 Timothy chapter 1, and really through the rest of the book, he begins to give us some ways that we can do just that. First, he says that they teach, they will teach something different. They will teach something different. Look in uh, here with me at verse 4. It says, Nor devote themselves to miss endless genealogies which promote speculation rather than stewardship which is, 
from God that is by faith. Again, this one truth that we've been given. Look in with me over at chapter 4, verse 1 through 2. It says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons through the insanity of liars whose consciences are seared. Again, they're teaching things that are not the truth that come from another place. We look in chapter 6, verse 3 through 4. It says, Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. We need to understand that false teachers teach something different than what we find in this book. It's one of the, one of the tests as I go through sermon preparation every week and I begin to to pray over that and to write an outline and to understand what, uh, what the Word is saying and how to communicate that to others. One of the things that I always go back and look is, and, and ask myself is, am I saying something that no one else has said before? Am I, am I saying something that no one else has seen? Because we've had 2,000 years of pastors doing this work, and if I'm saying something that's new, if I'm saying something that no one's ever seen before, then I'm probably wrong. One of, the, one of the great red flags of false teachers is that they will say, I have a new word. We see it in the Church of the Latter-day Saints. Their formation, it was a new vision, a new word, something that had never been revealed before. And then, whoop, that should have been a huge red flag. As they begin to walk away from Scripture, begin to deny the Trinity begins to deny a whole host of things. False teachers teach something different and they hide it under the guise of maybe a new vision or a special word from the Lord. Be very wary of someone who says that. They teach something different. The second thing they do is they misuse Scripture. They misuse Scripture. Paul talks about this here in chapter 1. He says that certain persons by swerving these have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they are making confident assurances. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient. And then he goes on to list those individuals. The False teachers, we don't, we don't know exactly what they were teaching. We don't know exactly who they were. But it seems like those in Ephesus who were teaching a false doctrine, a false gospel, they were teaching the law, but then you saying that the law was a means of salvation. Basically, they were using the law as a list of do's and don'ts. If you want to have salvation, if you want to get heaven, then do this and don't do this. It was not faith. It was not grace. It was works. Paul says that is not the point of the law. The law is so that we may understand what sin is, so that we may understand the problem, that we may understand the righteous of God's judgment in the problem. And so that within, after we come to faith, we may know how God desires us to live. One of, if you're one of our Sunday school teachers, you may recognize this analogy, but in one of the commentaries on this book, it describes the law kind of as a speed limit sign. The speed limit sign is not there 
to instruct safe drivers. Safe drivers already know I probably shouldn't go this fast on this road. Speed limit signs are there for those of us, the others, who are reckless, who would desire to go faster than what is safe. And it's to rein us in so that we understand this is too far. It's also there so we understand when someone gets pulled over, they can't say in good conscience, why are you pulling me over? You know why you're being pulled over. 80 out of 55 is not acceptable. It's posted. Some of you are nodding your heads like this is new information. It's not acceptable. So we understand when the law enforcement officer pulls us over and gives us a judgment, it's not a surprise to us. In the same way, when we have the law of God, it helps to rein us in, those of us, all of us, who have a sinful desire that would desire to go way beyond what is right and what is wrong. It's to rein us in, but it's also that we understand that the, the judgment of God is righteous. That it's not accidental. That it's not on a whim. And then for those of us who have placed our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, it's also there that we may know how to live. Not as a way, as a means of gaining favor, but rather as an understanding, this is what my dad expects of me. And this is how I'm going to live. So they misused scripture. They, they were taking it out of context and then saying, this is what it means. This is what you should do with it. And Paul's saying, no, that's not right. One, and this is, a, this is a dead giveaway. This is a dead giveaway for false teachers. They teach something different and then they misuse Scripture. We see it all of the time. We take verses out of context and we use them in inappropriate ways. Sometimes out of, out of a desire to be good. We have the, one of the verses that I see all over the place is out of Philippians. I, desire, through, I can do all things through God, God who strengthens me. That verse gets misused more than any other verse. It's correct. We can do. But do you know what Paul's talking about there? He's talking about being content in difficult times. Not changing difficult times. Not, not trying to muscle our way out of difficult times. Not trying to work our way out of difficult times. I've learned to be content in difficult times. How can I be content? Through the strength of God. Because I find my identity in Him. But we've used that verse for a whole host of things. I love sports, but if I see one more athlete say that I can win a game because of God who strengthens me, so help me. Like that is a misuse of that scripture. But we do it all the time. And we should confront that. We should say, that's not right. That's not what that means. So false teachers teach something different. They misuse Scripture. They also focus on vain discussions. They focus on vain discussions. Look here back with me at verse 4. It says, nor devote themselves to... or Sorry, let me back up to verse 3. When I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculation rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Turn with me quickly to Titus, just a couple pages over. Titus chapter 3, I want you to see this again somewhere else. It says there in verse 9, 
But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once, then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. Paul says, you want to find a false teacher, you want to see a false teacher, look for someone who is having discussions and arguments about things that don't matter. We have, uh, on Wednesday night, we started a new series, a new, uh, a new study on the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed, boiled down, basically is a look at the vital parts of a Christian. If you're a Christian, you have to believe these things. But so often, when you're dealing with someone that's a false teacher, what is going to happen is they are going to want to argue about things that don't matter to the point that they're willing to divide the church over them. We've seen it in Southern Baptist life. We continue to see it in Southern Baptist life. We've seen it in other denominations. We've seen it in the history of the church that so often where we get tripped up is not in the vital points of the gospel, but it's when we disagree and trip over the things that don't really matter. We just got done uh, in December, um, late November, early December, we got done with the book of Revelation. A wonderful, wonderful letter, wonderful book. Very interesting. Very complex, to say the least. And as we went through that, you can see, you can be a post-millennialist, pre-millennialist, a-millennialist, post-tribulation, pre-tribulation. You can be all kinds of things with big words and big titles. And guess what? You can believe any single one of those and still be in the faith. It is not a point of salvation on what you believe about revelation. You need to believe that it's true. You need to believe that it will happen. You need to believe that God is sovereign in those things. But there is room for disagreement in the faith on how we read that book. And yet there are those out there who would say, if you don't believe what I believe, then you are a false teacher. I'm sorry, brother. That is a sinful thing to say. You are causing a disagreement. You are causing a division that does not need to be there. Now, if you want to say that if someone is teaching works as a means of salvation, then we can, have, we can say, yes, that is something that we need to divide on. If, you want to, if someone is teaching on the, and they are denying the deity of Jesus Christ, then yes, we need to be divided upon that. But if you think Revelation chapter 19 is more literal than it is figurative, we can choose to disagree on that, okay? That's not something that we have to be divided over. It's something we can discuss, but it's not something we can argue about. If you want to see a false teacher, then you need to find some, then you are looking for someone that teaches something different than what's in the gospel. You're looking for someone that is misusing scripture, and you are looking for someone that is fascinated and, and caught up in vain discussions that have no purpose other than to cause strife and division among God's people. And then lastly, False teachers will always depart the faith. They will always depart the faith. Eventually, they will either do so physically or they will do so in chasing their own mistakes. Paul says there in verse, towards the end, it says in verse 18, 
This I charge, I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience by rejecting this. Some have made shipwreck of their faith. Among those are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may not learn to blas- that they may learn not to blaspheme. Here they have departed the, the faith by teaching what is untrue, and Paul has removed them. He's, he's said he's handed them over to Satan. That sounds pretty serious. They have shipwrecked their faith, he says. They have walked away. We see in verse or chapter four, it says, now chapter four, verse one, now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart the, from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons. False teachers will always depart the faith. Sometimes they do it out of their own choice. They under they become disillusioned with what they are teaching because it's false. And so they reject all of Scripture and walk away. They reject the faith in totality. Sometimes they leave the faith because the church confronts them and says, you're not one of us. But regardless, eventually, they go to one way or the other. They are not able to stay on the straight and the narrow. Unfortunately, we see this happen far too often. Individuals who walk away from the faith. And now in our media, in our time, it is sensationalized. Not that long ago, there was a a famous Christian author who had written two books in particular that were quite popular in the late 90s, early 2000s. They were books that were widely read by Christians. And yet, here in the last year, he has walked away from the faith denying its existence, denying its truth. And for those of us who were paying attention, we saw the warning signs. I mean, it was there, but no one said anything. We just, we bought the book, we read the book, we went on with our life. And this individual walked away and it was sensationalized, it was blown up in the media. And as I read the articles about his decision, my heart was breaking Because no one, it was evident that no one had gone to this individual in love and said, you have lost your way. Come back. Brothers and sisters, this is why we confront false teaching. It's not just the protection of the church, though that is first and foremost, and the the truth of the gospel, that it may remain pure, though that is first and foremost. But it is also because there are individuals that are believing and teaching a lie. And we have a desire to see them know the truth. We can't remain silent. Paul also talks about true teachers in this passage. We're going to go through this very quickly. But he talks about true teachers. We have a profile of false teachers, but there's also some things that he says here in chapter 1 that are important for us to see about what true teachers look like. First, true teachers teach what has been entrusted to them. I've already read these uh, once, but in verse 4 he talks about the stewardship from God that is by faith. In verse 11, with the accords with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God which I have been entrusted. 
He talks about this in several other places and throughout his letter, that we have been given this treasure and true teachers stick to what has been entrusted to them. We stick, true teachers stick with the Word of God. They don't try to add to it. They don't try to sensationalize it. They just speak the truth. They are copycats in the best sense of that word. Not only do they teach what has been entrusted to them, but they teach with love. You see there in verse 5, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. True teachers desire not controversy. They don't desire what is evil. They don't desire to divine, but they desire to love those that have been entrusted to them. They desire what's best for their congregation and for their classes and for those that they have influence over. Doesn't mean that they always speak. Doesn't mean they always speak without challenging, though. There are times that a good pastor, a good Sunday school teacher, a good friend has to say things that are difficult for us to hear. I love what uh, one pastor says. He says, good preachers are like Good surgeons, they know exactly where to cut, they know exactly how much to cut, and they know how to sew you back up. So too, a good pastor knows exactly where to cut, exactly how far to cut, and then they know how to encourage you and to bring you back. Sometimes we need someone to speak difficult words, but we do it not out of division, we do it out of love. They understand, thirdly, they understand their weaknesses. He says there in verse 12, I thank Him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because He judged me faithful, appointing me to His service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly. Paul understands who he was and who he is. He is a sinner redeemed by grace. But he also understands, I am weak. I'm weak. I'm not perfect. I was an insolent, once I was an insolent opponent. I love that phrase. I opposed God, but there was no point in it because I had no strength to do so. Teachers, true teachers, understand their weaknesses. True teachers are not out for their own glory. They desire to God do, for God to do something through them, not focusing on what they can do for Him. Too many times we as individuals think, what can I do for God? No, that's not the point. It's what He can do through you. True teachers teach what is the men interested in. They teach with love. They understand their weaknesses. They hold steady in the fight. He says there in verse 18, this charge I entrust to you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. True teachers remain steady and faithful. Doesn't mean they don't make mistakes from time to time. But they remain steady and faithful through the ups and the downs of life. And then lastly, they know who should get the glory. They know who should get the glory. Verse 17, to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul knew who should get the glory. It wasn't Paul. Timothy knew who should get the glory, and it wasn't Timothy. 
Peter knew who should get the glory, and it wasn't Peter. Good teachers understand that it's not about me, it's not about my glory, it's about His. I'm so thankful. So thankful for people in my life who have understood that truth and have spoken truth into my life. Men that have faithfully served. Women who have faithfully served as Sunday school teachers in my life. Who have spoken the truth of God into my life, not for their own glory, but for His. So we have these profiles. We have the profile of the false teacher. We have a profile of a true teacher. We have the challenge that we as a church are to confront false teachers. So where do we go from here? What do we go from here? How do we apply this to our daily life? One, learn to confront false teachers. Learn to confront false teachers. How do we do that? Well, first, you've got to know this book. The overused cliche of an example is that members of the federal government, how do they know what a fake looks like? It's because they know what the truth looks like. They, They know a forgery because they have studied the real thing so carefully. In the same way, how will we learn to confront false teachers if we don't know the truth? I think this stat is still true. It was a couple of years ago that the number one group where the Church of Latter-day Saints finds converts is Southern Baptist because we proclaim to be followers of God, but we have failed to learn the truth for ourselves. So we hear something that is close and we move. Brothers and sisters, how will we know truth unless we study it? Not just once a week. Not just from one individual, but for ourselves. And we confront. We confront false teachers. We go to them in love, right? We go to them in love and say, I think you've lost your way here. I think there's something that's a little bit off. We have those discussions. For others that we hear on the radio or on the TV, we turn the TV off. We turn the radio off. Paul says that he has handed these two individuals over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. What exactly does that mean? Well, the best commentary on Scripture is Scripture. So let's turn to Titus, and you'll see an example of this. He he explains this a little further. In verse 10, we read earlier, it says, As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once, then twice, have nothing more to do with him. That's what it means to hand someone over to Satan. Jesus talks about this in Matthew. That if there's someone that is sinning, someone that is walking in a false way, then you go to them first as an individual out of love. Brother, there's something wrong. Then you go to them with another person. Then if they won't hear that, then you take them to church. And if they won't hear the church, then you say, okay, you're not one of us. It is done out of love. It is done out of a desire to restore and to correct. It is not done out of anger. One of my favorite stories about this is the story of Apollos. You may not know him. He's a a figure, an individual we meet in Acts. Apollos is teaching the gospel of John, which was a good gospel. It was true, but it wasn't the full picture anymore. Jesus Christ had come. The Messiah that John talked about had arrived. Apollos didn't know that. And he was preaching the gospel of John and two individuals that were friends of Paul pull Apollos off to the side. They are no one special. They're not teachers. They're not apostles. 
They're just everyday people, and they pull this guy off to the side, and they say, hey, there's something wrong, friend. Apollos could have denied that. He could have rejected that. He could have been prideful about it. Instead, he accepts Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior, and he becomes this eloquent, wonderful proclaimer of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what it should look like. Gentle correction that leads to God's glory. So we learn to confront other false teachers. We encourage true teachers. Not just pastors, by the way. Though I certainly love your encouragement. But we encourage Sunday school teachers. We encourage those in our lives who have taught truth to us. Encourage those who do well. It's what 1 Thessalonians said this morning. It's what we see in Hebrews. Encourage others to good works. This is why we are a body of Christ. To encourage one another to the good work that God has given us to do. And then lastly, display Christ. We'll end with this point. Paul says in verse 15, The saying is trustworthy and true and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me the foremost, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example of those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. Paul says, I was saved in part for this reason. I was appointed to be a pastor, to be a proclaimer of the gospel for this reason, that I may display in my life the patience and the love of Jesus Christ. We all shop online now, so displays on, in stores aren't really much of a thing anymore. Though if you drive up Main Street, you'll see a couple of them. But there was a time when you would drive down Main Street of any town and every store had a display case. And they had those creepy mannequins that stood there that were clothed. And you were like, yeah, I want the creepy mannequin shirt. But it was a display of what was their best. It was a display of what they had. When you walked in, you expected more of the same. And you wanted it. Paul says, my life is a display case for the gospel. That's why I was saved. That's why I'm here and not in heaven yet. Because my life is a display case for Him. People should look at my life, Paul says, and they should desire more of the same. They should want to enter into that. Brother and sister, if you have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the reason you are still here and not with the Father in heaven is because your life is supposed to be a display case for Him. When people look at your life, do they want more of the same? Do they want what you're selling? When you go through a bad time with grace, do they see Christ? When you have a frustration with another individual, do they see Christ? When you are dealing with something that you don't want to deal with, do they see Christ? When you go in through the joys of life, do they see Christ? And do they want what you're selling. I think part of the sad truth of why we don't see people come to Christ is because we are not putting our life on display and what we are putting on display, they don't want because it looks just like everybody else. And in doing so, we are the false teachers. In displaying something that is not Christ, we are the ones proclaiming an untruth, that he doesn't change us, that he doesn't matter. Brothers and sisters, let us put on display 
the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ so that others may want that. I'm going to ask the team to come back up and we're just going to have a time of response. Maybe this morning, as you hear these words, you just need to confess, Lord, I have not put you on display. You're not on display in my life and I need forgiveness of that. I want others to know you, to know your truth. Father, please help me to do that. Maybe this morning it's to pray for those true teachers in your life who are faithful to instruct and to present the Word of God that they would be encouraged. Maybe this morning, maybe this morning you would say, I don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. I don't know the truth of Him. This morning He invites you. He wants to know you. He has created you in His image. You are incredibly valuable to Him if He will just let Him in. Just to ask Him, Lord, I believe in You as my Lord and my Savior. Lead on. This morning, if you'll do that, come talk to one of us. We would love to tell you what's next. Let me pray. Father, we come before you and we thank you for this time that we've had together. We thank you for your word. I know that, I know that there's a lot here, a lot that we've gone through, a lot of time that we've spent. But Lord, we believe that your word is worth it. Lord, that your word is worth our time. That your word and your presence are more valuable than anything else. That you are all there is. And Father, I pray that, that as we go through our week, Lord, that we would desire to know you better, to know your truth better. And that as we do that, Lord, that our lives as individuals and as a church would be a display case for our community and for our families and for those that we know. Lord, that they would want what you are offering because it is the best. Father, it is everything that we've ever looked for. Father, I pray, Lord, do that work in us today. We pray this in your name. Amen.